We turn now to the time in our service um, where we hear from God. And so if you would please take out your Bibles, uh, turn in them to 1 Samuel. We're back into the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, turn to chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can find the reading uh, printed out in your bulletins uh, here. We're going to be looking at this center section of 1 Samuel 14, so if you would please stand. If you can, this is a longer reading, so if you get tired and you need to sit down, feel free to, that's okay. Uh, We'll be reading um, from verse 24 all the way to verse 46. Uh, Pay careful attention, for this is the reading of God's Word. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. So no, so none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth. For the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has risen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. 
But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken. But the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You surely, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Thus far the reading of God's Word, may He bless it to our hearts. You may be seated. Uh, this week as I was preparing to preach this text, uh, my heart was filled with fear. I had this growing sense of dread. And it got to the point where it nearly paralyzed me because I realized how much I try to manipulate God through my own good works. Uh, I realized uh, how much I'm more like Saul than I'd really like to admit. And here's what we're going to see today. Hopefully, we're all going to see that we're more like Saul than we are unlike him. Um, we want to perform in order to make people think a certain way about us. We want to do good things so that God loves us. Kids, you get this right. Um, when you want to get ice cream after dinner, or maybe an extra hour on the PS4, uh, you don't go and punch your parents in the face, um, do you? Uh, you usually obey. You put on really good things. And oh, mom and dad, aren't you great? Aren't you amazing? Aren't you wonderful? That is until they become teenagers, and then it's a whole different story. Um, but you go on your best behavior. When you want people to think you're a good person, you don't go around talking about all of your flaws, right? You show how pious you are. We're all able to understand this when we have a big test, a big assignment at work, a big anything. We make sure all our I's are dotted and our T's are crossed. We make sure that we've done everything that we can do. We even make sure that we pray a lot. Maybe we're really careful to do our Bible study every day that week. And if we don't, we scramble to make sure that all these things are all together. 
You see, this is so much a part of our lives. We want to appease God so that He gives us good things. And I think that we do this because deep down we, like Saul, want what we want more than we want what God wants for us. And we're kind of afraid of what happens when those two things don't meet up. We think our relationship with God is kind of like our relationship with others. If we treat these other people well, they'll treat us well. And if we don't, then we get punished. You see, I think that fundamentally, functionally, we live so much of our lives like karma is the operating principle of our world, not a merciful God who saves sinners, who gives bad people eternal life. We treat God like He's in debt to us when we do good things. Instead of recognizing the reality that Christ was the only good one. Christ was the only person who ever obeyed God. Not for what God the Father could give Him, but simply because He loved God. It's because Jesus never once tried to manipulate God. That we now have new life. And so this week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Saul. We're going to focus in on him. And we're going to see that God doesn't want our false piety. God doesn't want our fake obedience. We're going to look at this in four ways. First, Saul's rash vow. Second, Saul's selfish sacrifice. Try saying that ten times fast. Third, Saul's unanswered prayer. And then lastly, Jesus the true King. First, Saul's rash vow. Uh, Israel is pressed in battle. Jonathan had just led Israel in this great victory while Saul was hiding in fear. And God delivers Israel and wins the day. And now we're told of the events as leadership switches from Jonathan to Saul. And notice the immediate change of language. Look down at your Bibles if you have them open. Verse 23, this is under Jonathan's leadership. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Now verse 24 is the leadership switches, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food. Kids, have you ever been uh, in PE? And you've done all of this work, and then all of a sudden you have to run right at the end of PE. Um, Have you ever had that happen? Uh, I used to play high school basketball, believe it or not. Um, I did used to run a lot. Um, And I can remember, uh, I can remember being in practice... And we would run to start the practice. And then we would run all through practice. And then at the end of practice, guess what we'd do? We'd run some more, right? The coach would say, line up on the baseline. And everyone would line up. And you'd just start running and running and running. Until I felt like I was going to die. You see, in that instance... The coach had good intentions, right? He wanted to build up our endurance and our strength. But that's not what's happening here with Saul. 
Israel had been fighting for 20 miles. 20 miles. Just to put that in perspective, I live in Poway up in North County. It's 20 miles between my house and church here. If you live in La Mesa, that's like fighting from La Mesa to church all the way back to La Mesa again. 20 miles. Hand-to-hand combat. Running. Fighting. And Saul makes this foolish oath and binds all of his army to it. Cursed be the man who eats food until evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. What a foolish thing to do. And here's the frustrating thing. There was no good reason for Saul to put this burden on his people. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that when the the army of Israel is in the midst of battle, they should fast. It just doesn't make sense. And yet Saul does this. Why? Why would Saul put Israel's army in such a precarious position? Notice what he says. Look down at your Bibles. Verse 24, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. He's putting his pride He's putting his vengeance over the health of the army of Israel. And instead of being wise and allowing his men to rest and eat and get strength so that they can then pursue the battle, he says, no, we're going to push. And he makes this foolish oath. His foolishness makes the army of God hard-pressed. You see, Saul fails in his leadership here. And as a dad and a pastor... I can absolutely identify with this, and maybe you can too. So often, um, we want our lives to go well. So we place an undue amount of burden. We make false oaths. Oaths that aren't even needing to be made. And those oaths bring stress on us. And trouble on the people around us. We press for success at school or work. And in doing so, we press so hard that we just run right over the people around us in our own quest for our own kingdom to be built. As a parent, I do this all the time. I put extra biblical rules and regulations on my family and my children and I elevate those things to the place where they're at the same level as God's law and then I go and I beat them up. And I sour them to the Gospel. And I build distrust. It's so sad. We want to put pressure on others. And the sad thing is we use religion too often. Our obedience to try to manipulate God and put pressure on Him. You see, Saul's pride, his greed puts Israel in jeopardy. The army doesn't even taste food. There's no relief. No respite. They're put under this terrible, tyrannous oath. Now Jonathan, not knowing about this oath, sees honey. And he eats it, as any like normal human being would. Um, He sees food and he eats it. Now, just grab a picture of this for a second. Uh, This 
picture is not just honey dripping down from trees. So it's not like he sees like a, like honey kind of like pooled up on the ground. Now, this area was known for ground bees, especially the forest that they were running through. And so it's almost like honey is bubbling up from the ground. This good provision. This blessed gift from God to replenish His people. So Saul eats. Or Jonathan eats. And the people freak out. They say, don't you know what your father just did? He put us under an oath not to do that. said, surely they'll die. And Jonathan says something that's really interesting. Look down at your Bible. Verses 29 and 30. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. My father has troubled the land. Jonathan rightly judges the actions of his father. As an interesting note, and this is something that I want to say now so that you save it in your brains until later in the sermon, as an interesting note, this is the same sort of language that we read in Joshua chapter 7 when it comes to Achan and him hiding the gold that was taken and the plunder under his tent. Just hold on to that until the end of the sermon. We'll come back to it. Jonathan didn't just get physical strength, though. His eyes grew bright. That means he understood what was happening. He gained understanding. He knew that if the army would have eaten, they would have wiped out the Philistines, wiped out God's enemies. The Philistines went home, though. The army's strength was drained, and the victory wasn't decisive. Saul's attempt to use religion in the form of this oath before God to manipulate God failed. And again, we see the contrast right between Saul and Jonathan. But really, we start to see the contrast between earthly kingdoms and a heavenly kingdom. But this isn't the only foolish thing Saul did. In this chapter, to try to manipulate God, and that takes us to our second point, Saul's selfish sacrifice. Israel is exhausted. They fought the fight of their lifetimes. They've defeated the Philistines, but it wasn't complete. And they see animals, um, animals left behind by the Philistine army. And the text says, I love this word, the text says they pounced on it. Um, I like to think of this kind of like a lion. Um, you know, or like a, like a big cat on the plane goes and pounces on prey. Um, they start to butcher it. Butcher the animals right where they're laying. And they eat them, blood and all. This is a huge problem because God strictly prohibited this in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. Now Saul may or may not have known that this was actually a sin. Um, he may or may not have known that. People actually had to tell him. <laughs> Saul, people are sinning right now. You may want to like pay attention to this. Um, or he may not have known that the people were doing this, but either way, someone had to come and tell them. Um, Saul, the people are sinning. 
And if Saul is anything, he's scrupulously pious. When he hears of sin, he wants to deal with it right away. He wants God on his side. And will do whatever it takes to get that and to keep it. Notice what he says to the people. You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. He doesn't say, hey guys, I really messed up. I see you're famished. Um, I should have let you eat. Let's eat together. Let's rest. No. In fact, he doesn't say that at all. He lacks the self-awareness to even see the fact that he's driven the people to this. And so he scolds the soldiers who violate God's law in their sheer desperation just to eat because of his oath. He sends his people out to help with the slaughter and he builds an altar. Verse 35 It isn't clear, though, from this, but I think it's safe to say that this is a little bit ironic. Read this. Look down. After all of this, I'm accusing the people. And Saul builds an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. It's almost like the author here is saying, like, look, um, Saul's in deep trouble. He sees it. And now he decides to build an altar? By the way, this was his first altar. He wasn't concerned about religious things before. He wasn't concerned about this. This is kind of like um, this is kind of like uh, those times in your life where you kind of blow off God for a long period of time and then you're in trouble and then all of a sudden you start praying really hard, right? Um, he's first shot at it. Now he decides to be pious. And don't let this slip you by. He doesn't change the blame game. It's not like he says, oh yeah, let's build this altar because I screwed up. No. He continues to blame the people. He doesn't say, I was foolish. Let's eat, let's rest, let's sacrifice. Instead, he makes the sacrifice to appease God. And then immediately turns back to what he wants to do. Look back down at your Bibles. 36. 35 into 36. was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go after the Philistines by night and plunder them. See, he turns back to what he really wants. He doesn't really want right relationship with God. (laughs) He doesn't want God at all. What he wants is he wants to beat the Philistines. And he wants to plunder them. He wants to be avenged. He wants conquest. Saul's pride, anger, and arrogance lead him right back to thoughts of war. Now kids, have you ever been caught doing something that you shouldn't do? Uh, maybe Maybe you're doing something and that you shouldn't do, and your parents catch you in the midst of it, and then when you're caught, you say what? I'm sorry, right? And then what do you do after they turn their backs? You go right back to doing what you wanted to do in the first place, what you were doing, getting caught doing. This is exactly what Saul's doing here. 
it strikes me that Jesus never played the blame game. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them. Jesus never put other people's lives on the line for his own selfish gain. Instead, he went to the cross to be the sacrifice for his people. One commentator says, Saul was turning aside from God, and yet now he began to build altars, being most zealous, as many are, for the form of godliness when he was denying the very power of it. In all these actions, Saul showed no sign of penitence towards God, grieving over sin or a real zeal in honoring the Lord. He feels only that his own interests as king are in peril. It's this selfish motive that makes him determined to be more religious. Saul foolishly says, let's press the battle. His pride and selfishness have finally taken root. Point three, Saul's unanswered prayer. Saul's doing his thing. And what's been interesting is that we've heard Jonathan's estimation of this, right? Uh, Jonathan says, my father has grieved the land this day. My father has done wrong this day. And now we get these great conversations between Saul and the people and then Saul and the high priest and God. Saul says, let's go before first light to plunder and finally defeat the Philistines. He says this to the people. And the people say, do whatever seems good to you. Remember, this whole chapter has been this contrast between Jonathan and Saul. And now this contrast becomes so clear in this one little conversation. Jonathan waits for a sign from God. Saul just moves. The people respond to Saul by saying this sort of half-hearted word of commitment, do whatever seems good to you. Whereas the armor bearer says, do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. You see, Jonathan's leader leadership engendered hope and faith and love in his people. Whereas Saul, the rash, the rash king, brought frustration, pain, and distrust. Then we get this next conversation between Saul and the priests of God. Saul gives no thought to God. He just says, let's go. Let's plunder. He thinks about himself. And it takes the high priest to say, whoa, wait a second, Saul. (laughs) We might want to pray about this first. We might want to inquire from God as to whether this is a good idea. And of course, Saul, being who he is, says, yeah, that's a good idea. I was thinking of that all along. It was customary and right for him to do this because Israel needed God to weigh in on the situation. But the problem is here. Saul asks God if he should go and rout the Philistines. And Saul experiences the reality of what false piety gets him. God stays silent. Do you know how scary that would have been? How frustrating to the leader of Israel 
He goes to God. And God's refusal to respond shows publicly that God's not with him. And Saul responds in the typical way an overly pious person responds. He starts blaming everyone else but himself. He says, who's done this? Who's sinned here? Whether whether he was hard-hearted or just lacking the depth of character to see himself in the situation for what it was, he starts a witch hunt to find out who was at fault. God doesn't answer Saul's prayer. And now Saul Saul turns to the people, to the Urim and the Thummim, and calls them to admit their sin. He says, separate between us. You see, here's where Achan shows up. Saul's thinking this is going to be a sort of Achan-esque kind of moment. Where God whittles it down to one rando person in the crowd. And then that person is punished. But what Saul doesn't understand, what he doesn't see, is that it's his own son. And now he commits the third major folly of this passage. He doubles down on his oath. He says, if it's Jonathan, then even Jonathan will surely die I will kill him. This sounds a lot like Jephthah in Judges. Jephthah is the judge who said, God, deliver me from, from uh, deliver these people into my hands. If I win this, this battle, I'll sacrifice you the very first thing that comes out of my tent. And what was the first thing? It was his daughter. He's sure that it's not himself or Jonathan, but he's so wrong. They pull lots. It falls to Jonathan. Jonathan must have been in such a bind, right? He knows he didn't sin. He knows he didn't do anything wrong. But he also knows that he needs to say what happened. So Jonathan says, I ate. I will die. Saul's now seeing the fruit of his foolishness. He moves to kill his son, but the people intervene. And they begin to recognize the truth about their king. This king that they wanted so badly, God, give us a king like the ones who rule over the nations. They start to recognize the truth about him. He doesn't want to be righteous. He just wants what's good for him. He doesn't want God. He only wants the benefits of being in right relationship with God. They see that Jonathan wanted God and worked with God to defeat God's enemies. The people of Israel realized what we are beginning to realize. You see, we like Saul so often want the benefits of God without having to deal with God Himself. We want to put on all the trappings of a good life. Lots of friends. A stable job. A good marriage. A good place in a church. A good husband. A good wife. Good kids. We may pray for God to bring us a spouse. To make our lives nice. 
We may obey hard and try to stay away from sin and then try to put God in our debt when we don't get these things. We get angry. We get frustrated with God. Here it is. What we want begins to rule us. And we try to put God in our debt through our vows, through our commitments, through our sacrifices, through our prayers, or through our piety. Let me put feet to this for a second for you. Um, As a kid... Uh, when I was growing up in the church, uh, there were many times throughout my life where I made vows. God, I vow I will never do this. Um, I made I made commitments. God, I'm going to commit to doing this. Reading my Bible every day. Reading through the Bible once a year, every year for the rest of my life. I made sacrifices. God, look, I threw away all of my secular music. Bless me now. Give me something, God. Bless me with what I really want. But God doesn't want He didn't want my false piety. He doesn't want your false piety either. He doesn't want self-centered piety. He wants us. And He wants to give us Himself. And He does this in such a strange way. He gives us a King who dies for us. Fourth point. Jesus, our true King. Jesus is so kind. Um, He doesn't foolishly use us to achieve His own selfish ends. Jesus does what's best for us. Jesus, um, Jesus, what Jesus wants is what's best for us. He wants to lead us not into a false relationship based on, um, on our own good works. Based on how good we are. No, He wants us. He's the true King. The King that we've all needed all along. He's the one who loved us to the point of caring for us and feeding us weekly. He knows that we're hard-pressed in the battle. He knows we've been fighting a lifetime worth of sin. And every week He calls us to stop and to rest and to eat. Instead of blaming everyone else like Saul did and then offering an ill-conceived sacrifice, Jesus became the sacrifice Himself. Jesus sought constant communion with God to the point where it was was His very food. The thing that gave Him Energy that brightened his eyes to do the Father's will. Are you starting to see it? In all the ways that you and I fail because we're like Saul, Jesus succeeded for us. 
This is the good news that we need. We don't have to be perfect because Jesus was. We don't have to lead a successful, victorious Christian life because Jesus was victorious for us on our behalf. When we turn to Him in humble repentance and reliance on Him, we find freedom from the very things, the very things that we put in our lives to rule us, that enslave us, that drive us hard into the battle, and then condemn us when we fail. And the beauty about Jesus is, when we act more like Saul, (laughs) putting God in our debt, or at least trying to, Jesus forgives us and loves us. You see, this changes who we are. It changes who we are. This isn't just a message for spiritual leaders, even though it is that. This is a message for all of us. We need to be led and motivated by the power of the Gospel, the power of the Spirit alive in us, the power of God and His salvation. We don't need leaders who are interested in self-gain. We don't need to be interested in self-gain. We need leaders who are interested in the good news of Jesus. And we need to be interested in the good news of Jesus. So as a word of application, we need to pray. (laughs) We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our pastor. For our elder candidates. For our elders who serve among us, we need to pray. We need to pray that the Lord would grip their hearts with the truth of the Gospel. Last thing. This passage shows us that we need to be led by the Word of God. I think one of the greatest judgments on Saul in this passage is the absence of both God and Samuel speaking. As people who dwell in a new kingdom under a new king, we must be committed to hearing and following. Hearing the good news of Jesus and then living that out in our lives. You see, God doesn't want false piety. On the flip side, God doesn't expect perfection. The sacrifices that God looks on with favor are a humble and contrite heart. May God bless Resurrection Presbyterian with a desire to grow in their knowledge of Christ, a willingness to ditch the trappings of false piety, and an unyielding commitment to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, um, this seems in so many ways uh, too good to be true. Uh, Jesus, that You would love us this much. Uh, Jesus, that You would uh, grant to us this sort of mercy, this sort of uh, care. Lord Jesus, that You wouldn't Um, You wouldn't. You don't. Um, You don't look for us to do great things for You and then follow that up with blessings so that we can be blessed. Lord Jesus, we thank You that with You, it's all blessing. 
because You've borne away the curse. Lord God, we pray, and we pray that You would grip our hearts with the Gospel. Help us to see and delight in our true King. Lord God, we pray that You would grip this church with the Gospel. Help it to be a lighthouse, a beacon for the Gospel as we go out into the world to serve those around us with love. Lord, we pray that You would strip away, continue to strip away, all of our desires for self. God, the song comes into my, my, my mind. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Make that true about us. It's to fix our eyes on You, Jesus. We pray for the building of Your church, for the coming of Your kingdom in our hearts and in this world. For Your glory, we pray. Amen.